the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, December 29th, 2020. It's been a delight to be able to go through everything we've had to go through since March with the Hallmans at our side and with their expertise, common sense, and reassurance. And uh, today being no different, we have, as we do every Tuesday in our third hour, Hugh and Lewis Hallman with us. Hugh Hallman is an attorney in town and educator, the former mayor of Tempe, Lewis is the managing director of Insight Analytics, I-N-C-I-T-E, Analytics, L-L-C dot com. Did I get that right? You did indeed. Okay, good. And uh, they are uh, our COVID uh, experts. They are our epistemological experts. And we take calls on anything you want to do politically or on COVID. And before we do COVID updates, Hugh, uh, when walking into the studio, said he wanted to provide a little insight into some of the reason Georgia is so important right now. And a week from today is when that election is, how fast that came upon us, it seems, didn't it? Um, we need to save one seat of two. Two would be good. One would be, um, what's the word I want? Critically important to say, to put it no higher. Tell us why. Well, uh, the reality is we have 50 Republicans in the Senate currently. There are not 48 Democrats. There are 46 with two independents who then caucus with the Democrats, making them 48. And we have two seats up for grabs in Georgia in the runoff here on January 5th. Uh, in an earlier hour, you talked about the fact that without uh, at least one Republican, the high likelihood is that we end up with the Biden tax plan getting imposed, which has significant implications for income taxation. And that's absolutely true. You go back to the 39.6% highest marginal rate for individuals. Now, that's certainly better than 72%, which it used to be until the early 70s. Um, but, thank you, Jack Kemp. Thank you, Jack Kemp. But it, could, it would have a devastating impact on uh, formation of capital. We already saw in the state of Arizona with a proposition that passed to allow uh, there to be a uh, significant uh, surtax on incomes over $500,000 for married couples and half a, a quarter of a million, I think it is, for uh, unmarrieds. Uh, and that will uh, have an impact in Arizona on capital formation. Why do I say that? Because a huge percentage of our businesses now are called pass-through entities. That is to say that you form a business in a shell that uh, limits liability uh, and makes sure that the business is its own thing. But we, I have a consulting firm that does exactly this. And, and so most, most small businesses now are these kinds of right. pass-through entities. What is a pass-through entity? It only has uh, a treatment as if it doesn't exist for tax purposes so that the individual owners end up with the responsibility to pay the income tax for the business, whether or not they take the cash out. And for these small businesses, most of them leave the cash in because that's how they build the business. They buy new equipment. They buy land to build a building on. All those kinds of things happen. And if you s scrape out another 3.5% uh, of the total 
for the state of Arizona pockets, that could be a big number, and that will impact the opportunity to grow businesses in this state. Well, the the uh, plan that Mr. Biden wants to put forward would increase the tax rate by about another 5% at the federal level, and that would then be scraping out a significant amount of profit from these small businesses. Imagine that. Keep in mind that that's uh, a total of, with the Biden tax plan, eight percentage points of gross income, not eight off plus, of the net. Eight plus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about one out of every $12 you make. Right right off the top, which is frankly more than the profit margins of many businesses already. So there's that. But the the bigger implications for the tax plan are estate taxes. So small business owners spend their lives building their businesses. They pay income tax on every bit of profit they make. And that income that's left goes back into the business to grow it. And yet somehow we have this concept in the United States of an estate tax that once you spend your lifetime building your uh, your the results to pass on to your kids, the marginal rate for estate tax is 55 percent. So let me put it into real terms. So I work my life and uh, make $100,000 a year, and I've paid income taxes on every bit of that. And I pile it up over the year and say I have $10 million that results. I've paid tax on every single dime of that already. Right. It's already been taxed. Already been taxed. And now I die. Municipal, federal, all taxed. During my earliest part of my legal career, the exemption amount was $600,000. So if I died with a $10 million business, I could exempt $600,000 of it, meaning that $9.4 million of it was subjected to estate tax. Right. Now, the total amount of that, given the numbers, would have been about 40%. But that meant I had to pay the federal government 40% of the $9.4 million. How am I going to do that? It actually means your heirs have to. That's correct. Pay taxes I'm now dead. on taxes on money that you already already paid paid taxes taxes on. That's correct. And now what happens? Well, the family farm, the family business has to get sold in order to pay those taxes. So to solve that problem, the huge industry got created called insurance companies. And they would sell insurance policies that would then help pay that tax. And so now I'm paying out of my profits every year a bunch of money. Well, that's an industry that absolutely lobbies to keep this horrific estate tax in place because then they can sell insurance policies. There are massive numbers of lawyers like me, massive numbers of accountants who love the estate tax because they spend lots of time and make lots of money counseling people on how to reduce the estate income tax. Well, uh, in 2013, that got fixed to some degree, but only to some degree. The exemption amount got increased to $10 million per person. So a husband and wife together would shelter $20 million. Well, that took us 30 years. So as you look at just the CPI inflator on that, that $20 million of shelter really wasn't for $20 million. It's a much smaller number over time. But here we have it. We've now got this estate exemption that increases uh, by the consumer price index. So currently, married couples can shelter about $23 million together. Well, that seems like a huge number. Except remember, they've already paid income tax on almost all of it to build a business in the first place. So on that as well, keep in mind that this isn't necessarily even cash that's in the bank, right? A business has a value that is really just a multiple of its annual ability to bring in cash flow. So a $10 million business is not the same as having $10 million in the bank. It's a family farm with a bunch of land and some cattle. And to pay that income tax, very often what you would have to then do, or the estate tax, excuse me, what you then have to do 
is sell the assets sell, at right. potentially a loss even because just because it on paper is worth $10 million and the government wants a $5 million check next month doesn't necessarily mean you can raise that liquid amount. Those are just some examples of the fiscal problems that if we don't, do not pick up one Republican seat in, in Georgia for the Senate, all those kinds of changes will visit us. The income taxation, the estate taxation, but worse. Here are you, the things you, that I think are worse. Before you get to but worse, I want to stay fiscal for a second because the corporate tax issue is not a small one either. Joe Biden wants to increase the corporation tax, the corporate tax correct. in America, to higher than China's. That's correct. Higher and than China's, which makes us less competitive. It than took China's. us until Ronald Reagan to get our corporate tax rate down to a rate that was competitive around the world, which is part of the reason the U.S. economy took off and has continued to, to prosper. But the reason I focused on that individual tax is because about 50% of American businesses now are taxed to the individual owner, not to the business itself. And so that individual income tax rate is more important still because that tends to be our small family businesses. It's about 90% of the total economic activity in our country comes out of that sort of group. But going back to what I think is more horrific, we have permanent potential change in our political environment. We have the possibility that then Joe Biden will get to do what he said. Oh, no, no, no. I I would never comment on that. Pack the court. They are talking about and talk during the campaign openly about the fact that because the conservatives now control the court to get around that problem, they will pack the court and push it to potentially 11 or 13 justices in order to get enough votes on the court to overturn conservative legislation and conservative court cases that still exist. In addition, you're going to see the addition, I would expect, of some states. We would then end up with a a couple of Puerto Rico, D.C., those kinds of statehoods. And then you end up with permanent change in the Senate makeup that makes it highly likely that the Democrats control the Senate for a very long time to come. Let me take this to the break on the judges because this is so so important. If we maintain the Senate by saving a Senate seat in Georgia or two, that means all this liberal leg- liberal legislation that Joe Biden wants to pass has a stop gap in the Senate. So he will then use his executive orders. He will use his pen and his phone, as Barack Obama described it. The only way to stop executive orders is through the judiciary, which is what they did to Donald Trump's executive orders. The only way to stop the judiciary from going left is also through the Senate All roads to leftism or socialism in America run through the Senate and not just the Supreme Court, Georgia courts in better stated through Georgia. Little Ronnie Millsap for you there on the Seth Leibson show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is the number. Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman are my guests. We, um, Started a little against uh, against type um, by not starting with COVID, which is uh, the expertise that uh, they bring to um, the studio. But they bring a lot of different areas of expertise. So I thought that was important a week away from the elections in Georgia to go through. Tell us what we need to know about COVID. So it does appear that we are in the middle of a spike in cases. And we see this throughout pretty much all of the metrics, um, hospitalization. Arizona or the U.S.? Uh, the, or the Arizona world. specifically. Okay. Um, 
the U.S. a little more generally so, although um, potentially not not at the same kind of acute level that we're seeing in Arizona quite right now. Um, so in, in Arizona, we thought for a few days last week that it seemed like hospitalization was starting to level out, but uh, it then subsequently has increased by about eight percentage points. So we, we're still, if you count all of the um, uh, extra uh, ICU beds and inpatient beds that uh, aren't being reported, sort of the... Um, the, the state level, the, the state uh, Department of Health Services doesn't include them. Right. Uh, um representing about 600 ICU beds and 2,600 inpatient beds. Uh, we still have about 30% of our hospital capacity actually empty, although the listed amount is uh, 9% yeah, empty I was gonna say because you've never of that. Know that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, w- while we're seeing uh, increase in use of those resources, we're still not at what I would describe at a critical level. And What's also interesting is that is how stable the aggregate number of beds used seem to be over the last few weeks. So we're getting more COVID patients, but we're getting fewer of other types of patients, uh, generally speaking. So whether that has to do with the a universal testing that the hospital is doing, and they're just Late seeing COVID, exactly, right. yeah. or or if we're really just seeing sort of a more exogenous spike in just COVID patients, is not very clear from the data. Um, but we certainly do still have room to spare. But the percentage of, of Arizonans who have COVID that get hospitalized is still a relatively low number. It's single digits. It isn't is. It? In, it's like eight percent or something. It's actually seven point one percent in total. It does vary dramatically by age. Sure, of so, for instance, uh, under twenty is only have about a one point two percent chance of being hospitalized if they're confirmed to have COVID. Whereas a uh, an over sixty five has about a twenty four percent chance of being hospitalized. So again, dramatic variance with age here. But uh, in terms of what's sort of happened in the last week, we uh, saw another five hundred and fifteen deaths reported. But again, this sort of draws back to the the drum we've been banging on this show here is the difference between reporting deaths and attributing deaths. So. When deaths are reported, most of the media picks up and says, okay, we found today it was 175 new deaths listed. The problem is that none of those 175 deaths actually are attributed to today, December 29th. They go back throughout the time series. No, this worries me greatly because I see a lot of commentators on the news screaming at people saying, you don't understand, you just lost 175 people last week. No, we didn't. No, no. You lose them yesterday. You lost them. So, so give an example, Lou, of what. Let, you, let me actually break recent. down that 515 number for you, and we'll, we'll, let me see if I can demonstrate exactly how this effects work. So, we had 515 deaths reported between 1222 and 1228. Of those deaths, 58 of them were attributed to the week of 1222. Actually, to 1228. occurred during that week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, just over 12 uh, percent uh, of yeah. them about uh, occurred over the period that they were actually reported. Now, again, of those 515 deaths, 297 of them were attributed to the prior week. So that is 1215 to 1221. And then 160 are from before the 15th, so at least two weeks old. So, again, we're seeing significant lag as sort of older data is coming in and then and then sort of being folded into our results. And but it gets is, worse and worse as time goes on because there's a longer period of time when old death certificates, old deaths can be reported. The longer this goes on, the longer the, the prior find, period of right. 
time has gone on, the more it's likely that you're going to find those. You also get more of this kind of institutional lumpiness with the data where... During the holidays! Exactly. When, it's when, Merry Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's let and ask you about let's that. forget to go to... Oh, we well, didn't go to work you, today. Let me ask you specifically about that because Joe Biden gave a speech today where he said, and I'm quoting directly... They have to anticipate that the infections over the holidays will produce soaring case counts in January and soaring death tolls in February. I'm actually really glad that you're bringing this quote up, Seth. Um, Soaring. Because I'd actually like to like to maybe rethink about what we're looking at the the cause for sort of a lot of this holiday spike that we've been seeing. Mm -hmm. And my number one culprit, frankly, would be universities, because look at look at the pattern of behavior that we've had. Right. These are all of our young people who are. Over the age of 18, so they're at the point where they can contract and spread the virus. They're physiologically more mature than kids who mm-hmm. seem to have difficulty with that. They're much more socially active and they ha- sort of have the highest um, sort of dispersion amongst themselves yeah, in sure. passing along the virus. Sense of immortality has to you do know, with that. There's, there's probably, settings, yes. probably exactly. a lot of that, yes. <laughs> so Historical imbibement areas. Yes. yes. <laughs> then, then we have all of these colleges, though, who are seeing localized spikes on their campus because obviously they have the population more most predisposed towards it. And they also have the population least subject to health risks from this. They're, they're just the least likely to die on paper. Okay. Uh, and so the response to these spikes then is to panic, panic, decide that their own liability is more important than anything else and that they need to minimize it. So how do they do that? They stop all in-person classes after Thanksgiving, and they send everyone home from the highly mobile congregate center back across the country to live with their older parents and the like. And yet somehow after this, th- this, this is what we get from the repository of our experts and our scientists, this sort of, you know, my way or the highway, self-centered, overly concerned with their own liability, then tosses the rest of us to the wind. And... Then we get to hear about how it's all Donald Trump's fault that the virus is spreading and not actually really seriously investigate any of the actual causes. It's delightful. So we have this bizarre uh, environment in which we're living where university settings where students are gathering may spread the disease among that population. But those are the that's the population least likely to succumb to anything. Once they're infected, they can uh, stay indoors and attend classes online. Uh, the universities can continue operating, but instead it is the panic that keeps setting in. So we have in our own state, Northern Arizona University, with apparently the uh, um, president of that university now exiting uh, due to choices made with respect to how to handle COVID-19. Part of that problem comes from the fact that that population that they're dealing with is significantly Native American, which has comorbidity problems in a higher rate than other populations. So if you look at the state of Arizona, the primary locations where we have high uh, um, numbers of cases are the reservations. Let me talk about that when we come back and other stats will welcome calls. And I want to talk about this theory. You want to bring back Darwin. Yes, let's talk about the Darwin effect with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. Not a shock. Is there a greater tease in talk radio than let's talk about Darwin and SARS-CoV-2? Never. never, We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Holman, I ask you this just based on your and my similar age as opposed to your son, Lewis. Do you remember the journalist I.F. Stone? Isidore yes. Stone? Yes. Famous for two quotes. He said, I always enjoy opening up the Washington Post in the morning because it's a fun experiment to find what page the first page story is on. The second one is, I'm having so much fun I should be arrested. I'm adopting the second right now. I love having you guys here. Thank you for both for being here and doing this with us. It is an honor and a privilege. We truly enjoy it. It's been a really wonderful year doing this, Seth. Thanks. We do appreciate well, it. We well, have, we, have, we have miles to go, miles to go before we sleep. Talk to me about the Darwinian theory that you wanted to raise. So I'll start, but Lewis is much more articulate on this. From the beginning, we've been discussing how human behavior is going to change the arc of the progression of SARS-CoV-2, the virus, uh, and how it will then infect us with a disease we call COVID-19, soon to be COVID-2021, perhaps. Uh, and yeah, that's this, a great point. Yeah, I think we're going to have to change the name. Yeah, this is not this is not uh, this is not unusual and. Uh, Darwin explained how uh, things progress and how we are sitting here today instead of uh, Neanderthals, although I've, I've met some people that I wonder, snuck through the fence. Uh, in this instance, uh, you've got the likelihood that human behavior is changing the course of the evolution of the virus. Well, people get sort of the concept of, uh, of evolution mixed up. Uh, we understand the, the survival of the fittest. And what that means is that the, the pieces of anything that succeed are those that are adapted to the environment to progress. And we've talked previously on the show about how diseases tend to become less lethal because the lethal versions of the virus of the biological incident that attack human beings, if they're too aggressive – it kills off the host too fast so they don't get to spread to new hosts. So we see that with certain kinds of diseases even now that exist. We The disease in Africa that causes everybody to bleed to death is? That would be Ebola? Ebola. It kills people so quickly and so effectively that it hasn't really transmuted, uh, been spread across the globe quite so easily. In fact, HIV, uh, which leads to the disease AIDS, has progressed and succeeded to calm itself because the versions that killed off its ho their hosts too quickly meant that they didn't get passed on to new hosts. Well, here we have SARS-CoV-2, and suddenly London, the folks in London, probably the Queen, I'm sure, uh, have now discovered that we have uh, that, that they've discovered a new version of the virus that is more easily transmitted from person to person. Well, imagine that, folks. If we're trying to, quote, slow the virus, unquote, uh, we're going to wear masks, we're going to wash our hands, we're going to undertake all kinds of behaviors to try to stop the transmission. The likeliest version of the virus that's going to succeed and take up the universe is the version that is most easily transmitted, and so it should be no surprise that if we're all now wearing masks and doing other behaviors to try to slow the spread, that the version of the virus that ultimately starts taking over is the version that's easily spread. That's a really great point. So we want to think well, about once. this. I want, I want to replay that piece of tape several <laughs> times. But go ahead, Luke. So, so you want to think about uh, this, this transmission that, that will occur as sort of iterated over a, a really large number of, of sort of host cycles. Hundreds for, of millions of people. Right. And so one of the other things that's going on right now is that 
we we have a new virus that has been very very quickly spread all over the world, and what's interesting is SARS-CoV-2 as we know it. And but what's interesting then is that with everyone, two versions that were out there, by the way, right, that, that then everyone is then using a different sort of tactic to try and contain the spread. And so what this does is not only because it's spread throughout the world, it's it's got different environmental pressures, you know, sensitivity to heat or cold or moisture or all of these other things that can muck about with viruses. But not only that, then, there are different types of sort of human protocols, different environments that it has to exist in. So you're, you're exactly right when you say that... He's pointing to me. I just want folks to know that this is my son pointing to his father saying I'm exactly right. Well, when you say that... that uh, what is sort of the the fittest option will adapt itself to the circumstances, and so in a, in a an environment with lots of lots of masks, the virus that will succeed then is the one that best adapts to masking. I actually have right. a few more points on this. If you want to do it on the other side, if we could, yeah, let's do it. We'll be right back. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Let me put in a word for something that really does a great job of boosting your immunity, and that's balance of nature. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables, all organic, picked at the peak of ripeness, and they have a great deal. I take it every single day. They're offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-2468-751 or visit them online at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Little outfield for you there on the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, not a little of them, a lot of them. Thank goodness they're here and we have them on our side. Next. So we've been talking about uh, Darwin effect and that we have a virus now that has succeeded to in its evolution based exactly on the human activity that's trying to slow it or stop it. And I think Lewis has thought more about this issue than anybody. So, Lou. So we were talking about earlier uh, that a lot of how the virus behaves and that there are these new strains emerging is, in fact, directly a response to the human environment it encounters, right? So it's across all of these different countries and it's faced with all of these novel sort of containment strategies for it. And so locally in all of those different places, you'll see sort of the the profile of this thing start to diverge as it fits itself towards local circumstances. So it's mutating in its given circumstances based on how human beings are acting because the versions that we kill off leave the versions that succeed based on the human response. Exactly right. And so those successful versions then continue propagating and as they become more distinct from one another through this selective pressure, then you'll get different strains emerge. And the scientists, what do they think about this? Well, what's, what's very interesting about this is that we haven't really had any kind of honest conversation about this, right? We've only really thought about stopping, flattening the curve for the current iteration of the virus. So there stopping the current virus. Right. And so there hasn't been a conversation about these kinds of societal risks. There almost there has never here. is. Well, okay, maybe here. But this this really, to me, clarifies sort of a, a dichotomy that I think is very powerful and has been completely ignored that has to do with the kind of societal risk we're willing and able to take on. So, for instance, are we better off in the short run really trying these aggressive policies if the result of this that we bre- is that we breed antibiotic-resistant pathogens or other issues that I'm are— I'm going to make that English here, Lou. So taking sanitizers and sanitizing everything— 
likely assures we're going to have a new round of superbugs. We already have in our hospitals uh, strains of uh, virus that uh, uh, staph infection that cause problems to human beings when they go to the hospital. You go to the hospital to get well or get cared for, and we now have uh, staph infection that uh, overrides the protocols that hospitals apply. We now have superbugs out in the world that are flesh-eating viruses and bacteria that we cannot control because they've become immune to the things we have applied to them. In other words, we've killed off all of their competitors who were weaker and could succumb to what we were applying to them, and now those stronger things survive. And what we've done with SARS-CoV-2 is assure that the versions that will survive survive because they overcome the human activity that we've implemented to try to protect ourselves. So this has a couple of consequences. First of all, it makes all of our remedies less effective in the long run because the virus is actively, is actively, I should say, um, sort of molding itself and adapting itself to effectively counter these things. But it also then, it, it really means that what we need to do is have a really complicated national conversation, which is something that no one ever wants to do about anything because it's really hard. And about what? Well, I, I would say about what the real risks and consequences are. And this is the thing. People keep bleeding that we have to listen to experts, but they then don't specify what kind of experts. Because I have news. Experts will disagree. They will favor their own subjects and they will reject alternate outcomes. So what we really need is a confluence of people. We need moral philosophers. We need economists. We need sociologists. We need epidemiologists, statisticians, you name it to come together and really, in a way that the public can get behind, start tossing through what some of our options are and what the outcomes from those options are. Because none of us has really had sort of any kind of active voice in this so far. It's really just been this paralytically reactive sort of soup of bad policy. And that's impossible to have that conversation in a cancel culture. So anybody who engages in the activity of shutting down opposition assures that we will not have real conversations that give us the best alternatives for a long term. So boiling it down, an economist would say, how do you value two different investments? Well, you use the net present value. You figure out what it would be valued today comparing an investment in real estate versus an investment in the stock market, and you choose which one's best based on that idea. Well, in this instance, with a disease, the net present value is the long-term impact, the number of deaths over time. And what we have been focusing on is how to stop death today without taking into consideration the deaths we are going to cause tomorrow because our activity has assured that this virus will mutate into versions that we may not be able to control as easily. So as we're trying to make sure that we uh, stop the spread, as opposed to understanding, and Seth, you've said this as brilliantly as anybody on this show, that the idea should have been to slow the spread and utilize the assets we had available to take care of people over time. But instead, we ended up with a trough during the late summer, and now we have another spike, which may overwhelm hospitals. Certainly, that's what's going on in California. Remember, that is the state that has done it absolutely perfectly, according to CNN. But wait, now we have people 
uh, fearing for their lives. We have hospital overwhelm in California. They have, like Arizona, surge bed capacity, but they can't staff it. We have, we have, as a result of our behaviors, reduced the likelihood that in the long run game, we will deal with this well, and we may have assured that in the future we'll have even more deaths, not fewer. Hold that thought right there, um, and let's bring it to a conclusion on the other side of this break. Let's put a let's put a bow on it because the most scary headline I have seen in the last several months was in Politico, which is what can California do next to curb its growing spread? What can they do? Are you kidding me? What can they do next? Amputation? I don't know. Well, if you amputate the top of the government, perhaps. Yes, maybe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Lewis, you want to take us out? Let's do it. So my concluding thoughts for this week really are that the world is a staggeringly complex place. This sort of plays off what I was going going through in the last segment. But, you know, there is no single-use expert that can tell us what to do. If there were, communism might have worked. In 1991 in the Soviet Union, there were three socks for every two Russians. And... Central planning, anything as complex as an economy, even for a subset as simple as socks, didn't really work that well. There is too much variability to human behavior. There is There are too many unknowns and there's too much information for a single mind to process that we could ever hope for some great genius to just come down the mountain and give us a top-down solution. So we're stuck with these hard problems. And the only way that we solve them, the only way that we can make it work is if teams of our best and brightest come together in an honest way and inform us of the trade-offs that, that we our decision-making actually has. But this hasn't happened yet, and we badly, badly need it to Well, be. it has happened. It has happened when I, you take out one word in that sentence. It is not teams of experts. It is our population, which is the most creative ever known to humanity. Why? Because we have freedom of the individual and the opportunity to express our ideas. And because of the diversity of the founding of this country— that is, all the different kinds of people that we have here, we come up with better ideas. Germany can manufacture things brilliantly, but they can't create them. China then takes what Germany creates and duplicates it. But the United States and the people in this country create the new ideas that solve problems. And it is because of the diversity of this population and the people in it and the thing we must fight against and we must fight against it with everything we have is this notion of a cancel culture. We need to have these conversations and blow open the doors to discuss our hardest problems. And those on the right cannot allow those on the left to shut them down through fear and intimidation. You must continue to fight back into this new year, the 2021 year. We've got to work our tails off to get our ideas out there because they are the solutions for the future. Here's to a decentralized world. Until tomorrow. I'm Seth Leibson. God bless and class dismissed.